Those are things that just get unsaid between the people we love. And and and, and if you could go back, if you you know if you weren't stubborn and then make no mistake, that movie is built around that moment for me. Things that go unsaid. While I'm no gamer, this is one breezily intoxicating expedition into the unknown. I wish I could pick up a controller and play for myself, and that's a compliment. That's from Sarah Michelle Fetters of MovieFreak.com. One of the films we're reviewing this week is indeed Free Guy, starring Ryan Reynolds in theaters, but also major news. I'm back from Iowa and a once-in-a-lifetime experience at the Field of Dreams game. So we've got Kevin Costner and Dwyer Brown, who played his father, John Kinsella. In addition to that, the film Midnight Cowboys, one of my favorites. We have author Glenn Frankel later today. Cody, I heard an audible gasp when I said Feel the Dreams, even though you've never seen the movie. I have never seen the movie, but I watched that game, man. That was so cool. Baseball does nostalgia so cool. And I'm wondering, like, you were there, man. Like, that was a moment that you got to be a part of. Like, just, I kind of want to hear about it. Like, how cool was it? Was it as goosebumps in person as it felt on TV? It was, and it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience, although they're going to do the game again next year. But still, I was there for the first once-in-a-lifetime <laughs> once in a lifetime until next year, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're building the freaking big-ass stadium. I hope they're going to use it more than one yeah. time. That was my thought. I'm like, how much did this cost to build the stadium? Like $5 million? It was just one time only. Like, no, let's get some value to this. And if you've been to Iowa, they love the Cubs. So Cubs next year, booked. I believe it's Cubs-Reds will be the game. So uh, remarkable experience. What helped is I'd watch the movie again. So we did a tour inside the house, which you can see on uh, social MLB Network, Intentional Talk. So it was helpful that I saw the movie again because I'm like, oh, this is where Annie is watching the Jimmy Stewart film Harvey. This is where Kevin Costner and Amy Madigan are doing the dishes. And like every time with movies, Cody, it's always a lot smaller than you realize. You can go in the house, you go, that's it? Like, how could they put all the lights and the camera equipment? But in the movie, somehow it looks bigger. And it was really cool to stand in the living room where they first point out, oh, look, there's Shoeless Joe Jackson. Um, and I, I'm amazed. The house has been there since 1906. It isn't really open to visitors, but because obviously we were there with the network, we got to take a little tour and do some filming. My main thought was this. When I first saw the field, I'm like, wow, there it is. Really cool, idyllic, pastoral. There it is, the field of dreams. And I was very kind of... I was treating it very sacred. Like, I'm like, I'm going to walk around it. Like, you know, if I walk in the white lines, all of a sudden I'm going to be playing baseball. Yeah. I can't do that. But I noticed this was the first day I was there, mainly media. The next day, people were everywhere. Like, I, I was really impressed at how lax everyone was and how open the entire area was. You could go play catch where Kevin Costner did. You could walk out of the corn stalks like every person was doing. Oh, man. You could do whatever you want. Anybody like, it, could it was, walk in the cornfield? I was going to ask if you did. Did you walk in the cornfield? Because that's where I wanted to go. First thing, I went to the corn stocks, I'm like, and I did it early. I'm like, just in case I get in trouble, let me get out of the way. Walked into the corn stocks. Were there any murderers the, there? No, thankfully, no. When I walked in, I was like, I, I did find uh, some wallets in the back of the corn stocks. I'm like, oh, hey, 20 was bucks. Mel Gibson but there? Mel Gibson was not in the corn stocks. No, thankfully not. He was not lurking there. Look at that signs me, reference by me. Huh? Well, this is the, I think people are going to hear that and go, you know what? Cody's digging deep Look here. Look at this. I'm like we didn't like gold, but we like signs. If you're into farming, though, I mean, that, that's the big takeaway for me. You go there, the smell of cow dung, I mean, it just permeates your senses. <laughs> you say, you say that like it's a good thing. You're like, the smell. Oh, yeah. I've it's never just, heard someone say oh, the yeah. smell of cow dung so positively before. Yeah, well, that's, that's what you get when you're in Iowa. And it, it is truly the middle of nowhere. Four-hour delay from Newark to get to Chicago. Oof. Flight canceled. Not on the tarmac, right? There's nothing worse no, than an on-the-tarmac no, yes. delay. 
Good point. Thankfully, I was just in the terminal reading a book. Second, I was that's reading, the second worst bit. place for a delay, in the airport. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't horrible. I went and got some tilapia. had a little uh, soup. Uh, I was reading my Midnight Cowboy book, so I was getting research done for this week's Cinephile. Um, but thankfully, from Chicago to Dyersville is about three hours, so... You know, it's not great, but it's doable. And, I mean, literally, Dyersville, which is where the Field of Dreams is, middle of nowhere, 4,000 people. The hotel we stayed at, beautiful hotel, Hotel Julian in Dubuque. I told this to you uh, last week on the show when I made an appearance in the Levitar program. But that's where Al Capone used to yeah. stay. And the second floor, he has a giant suite. And the reason why is, from that view, you could see the Kappas from three different states. Because Iowa borders Illinois mm. and also Wisconsin. So when the cops are coming to get him. Al Capone will make a quick getaway. Is this so, suite still in use? Like, can someone stay in yeah. this suite? Yeah, I asked Who the guy. Who got it? I got the Who composer. was in it? Costner. I'm going to guess Joe Costner. Buck. Oh, yeah. I'm going to guess because yeah, the Fox Sports was standing there, mm-hmm. big Fox Sports sign, so maybe him and John Smoltz bunking up together. <laughs> but uh, it was definitely an incredible experience, and I encourage everyone to, to go check it out. As you, as uh, Chris alluded to, I spoke to Kevin Costner. Um, you're going to hear from him momentarily, and Dwyer Brown. Dwyer Brown, great guy. I mean, listen, he played John Kinsella. He's only in the film, you know, five minutes, but he's so memorable. And I think while watching the film again, I think it's a, you know, a really good movie, and it's elevated by a great ending. You know, that ending takes you to a different stratosphere. And I know you haven't seen the film, Chris, but the, those who don't like it say it's too sentimental, it's too mawkish, and I get that. It, the Iowa experience, much like the movie itself, either it works for you or it doesn't. If you didn't like it, watching that game on Fox, you said, this is ridiculous. Kevin Costner's wandering around the field, it, and now Aaron Judge is walking to That's what I was wondering. Is that what they were channeling right. there with Kevin Costner just meandering around the field for three yeah. minutes before? I he- love the way he was meandering. It was amazing. <laughs> I was like, what is Because watching in the stadium, I didn't know what he was doing. I'm like, he's taking three steps to the right, four <laughs> steps to the left, and it's very choreographed. And then you see the Yankees and the White Sox coming out. I wasn't sure how it would play on TV. So when I got home, I watched it because I DVR'd it. And again, I think it was a mix of both. I think either it was really corny, but also magical. And the Field of Dreams music, I'll tell yeah. you, being there, oh. it was definitely... It got really me. Cool. I hadn't I even seen the movie, and it got me with goosebumps. Billy on the Levitard show made the joke that it looked like Kevin Costner was wandering around looking for his car in the outfield. <laughs> Just like a couple Trying steps this like way. A couple st- if, right. if he would have had a clicker for a car in his hand, it wouldn't have looked that odd for like the way he was pacing around. But I tell you one thing, Kevin Costner, the epitome of California cool. I mean, we had him Man. on the second day, and we had the commissioner, Rob Manford, as well. Rob was there a few minutes early, and they're waiting for Costner. Like, okay, just start the segment. It's live TV. Either he's there or not. We'll figure it out. And they go, okay, he's coming up just now. And I turn him. There he is, sunglasses on, like beautifully pressed shirt, jeans. Like, he just, just got off the beach in Malibu. I mean, total like, Hollywood what, star. When he walked up, I'm like, this guy's been a star for 35 years. Did you get, movie fan. Did you get the vibe, though, that he genuinely was into it, or he was being paid to be there? Like, I, I know I no, don't want to, no, like, gen- rip it. No, 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 genuinely into it. Because when he walked up, not, I mean, be- million dollar smile. They oh, shook my hand man. and I smile. I'm like, oh my God, it's Kevin Costner. Yeah, I'm like, good. dude, the end, like, I want to talk with the Untouchables with this guy. I mean, he's in his mid 60s. Oh, he looks great. Yeah. Uh, then he said hi to Millar. And they sat down next to Manfred. And then, then we just, the, the big thing is I noticed is that normally you're like, what was he like? What was this? But all I got was what you saw. Like, it's like when Van Pelt did Letterman, he didn't meet Dave beforehand. It's just he met Letterman on the show. After he shook his hand, that was it. So Kevin Costner walked up. What you say is what you get, which you're going to listen to in this interview. He was articulate. I thought he was smart. He was gracious. Then the interview, he thanked me. And then I actually had to get into a golf cart. I had to go host a press conference with Kevin Costner and Rob Manfred for all the media there. So, so, you, got the to, so you got to big time Kevin Costner. All right, I got to get out of here, Kevin. Later. Hop into no, 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 a golf he, cart. He, oh, no, 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 he, he left oh, first, okay. and I had to do the rest Damn, of my show. Damn, he didn't show. get to see but, you get no. onto the golf cart, because that's a power no. move. 
getting onto he a golf cart. He didn't see the golf Yeah, he – and I was worried because I'm like, listen, there's a lot of people there. Like, how is he going to get through this crowd? Everybody wants to have a catch with Kevin Costner. So I'm sure he had a couple of guys with him there. Maybe he had his own golf cart just to get whisked away. What is – you're a baseball guy. So what is what is with people that say have a catch? You play catch. Yeah. Like, you don't have a catch. 100%. Why, 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 why 100%. are we having catches? Well, you'll, you'll hear that answer here in the interview, but as Kevin Costner said, you know, for a California guy, he would say play catch. So did Dwyer Brown. But Phil Alden Robinson, the director from Long Island, said, no, 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 from where I'm from, it's have a catch. Which they say it's an East Coast thing, but Cody, I'm from the East Coast. I mean, Canada yeah. is the East Coast. I live in Jersey. I've never heard anyone in the area say to me, do you want to have a catch? It's kind of like catch. in the Northeast, you guys, you people in the Northeast say stand online. No, you stand in line, okay? <laughs> stand, stand online. That's terrible. I'm with you. I want to stand in the line. Um, but yeah, Coster definitely very memorable, and the, the press conference was good because again he articulated his thoughts about Field of Dreams. Again, I wish I just wish I had more time. Like people were texting me saying, "Hey, is Yellowstone coming back?" I'm like, "Dude, I had no time. Trust me. I want to ask him about the Untouchables and um, you know, Perfect World, great film. You know, Clint Eastwood's very underrated. Mr. Brooks, serial killer. But I didn't get any of that. What you hear is what you're going to see. So uh, Kevin Coster coming up, and Dwyer Brown again, who was a part of this documentary that I was on. It was on Fox Sports called If You Build It. If you want to go check that out as well on Fox. Uh, before we get to Kevin Coster and Dwyer. Brown, and of course, our special guest, uh, Glenn Frankel, who's the author of Shooting Midnight Cowboy. A quick review here of Free Guy. Have you seen Free Guy, Cody? I mean, I don't imagine you had time this weekend. I have not. <laughs> so Ryan Reynolds is stars. No, it's fine. You haven't seen Field of Dreams. I'm pretty sure you haven't seen Midnight Cowboy, but you're going to love this interview. I'm the worst. <laughs> no, you're not. You just what I've noticed, though, and by the way, thanks to Dan Stanzik, who was great last week. Uh, Dan crushed it, I think, because he obviously knows the material so well. He was the first producer of this podcast. He made me look bad. So I'm well. not going to lie. Well, I'll tell you one thing about him that he's great, that he's very responsive. Like, the one thing I've noticed with you is with emails, you're not responding. We're like, going to do just, this. We're going to have a meeting on air. Like, okay. literally, Dan Stanzik said to me, hey, he forwards the email about the card counter, and he's like, hey, you should get Schrader. Mm-hmm. I'm like, boom. I forward it to Cody, and then no response I forward, from me. So I move it along the chain. We keep this moving, baby. Like, I could have said, hey, I got your email. I'm moving it along. But I, resp- I, I responded. I moved it forward. Like, you're right, though. I'm terrible with email. <laughs> but I've learned, though, is that – yeah, what I've learned is that you're very good with text. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're definitely improving with text versus email. So long story short, good to have Dan Stanzik <laughs> back. He's, he's very responsive on email or text. Damn you. I'm sure he'll tell us Damn you, Dan yeah. Stanzik. <laughs> but um, as far as um, Free Guy is concerned, uh, I'll say this for the movie. I remember being back at Ryerson where I went to college, and there was a film, TV show called The Newsroom. Hopefully my friend Cab is listening. He can verify this. But it was a big deal, like, in Canadian television. Ken Fink, I'm like, oh, it's so good. And then after you had to write, like, you know, notes as far as what you thought of it. And I burst out laughing when the teacher said somebody had written, I liked it a lot better when it was called The Larry Sanders Show, which is my favorite comedy of all time and a brilliant show. And clearly Canada just ripping off a great genius creation from Shandling. So I can make my review of Free Guy very succinct. I liked it a lot better when it was called The Truman Show. I mean... I didn't even watch the trailer. I just said, okay, this is the big movie opening this weekend. It's Ryan Reynolds. He's Canadian. I'm going to support it. I've got to review a new film every week here for Cinephile. It's my job. And then I sort of start watching. I go, okay, if you've seen The Truman Show, that's a better movie. But in fairness, The Truman Show came out, I believe, in 98. Yeah. So it's been 20 years. So if you're Chris Cody, 33 years of age, probably didn't see The Truman Show when you were 11. This is like an updated movie for a different generation. Go ahead. I'm a fan of, instead of watching the preview, just read the synopsis. I don't need to see. I don't want to. I don't want to get too many spoilers. Uh, previews give away spoilers. I like a synopsis. It just tells me the premise, and that's all I need. Less is more. Less is more before a movie. 
Yeah, I'm with you on that. Because honestly, with Stillwater, I knew nothing. I just knew Tom McCarthy was in. I'm like, oh, I'm in. Tom McCarthy, that's all I need to hear. Spotlight, win-win, The Visitor, Station Agent. Oh, it stars Matt Damon. Cool. So I'm with you. Trailers, by their very nature, take the movie, and they distill it to a two-minute yeah, version of the movie. They make every so, movie look good. Right. That's also <laughs> true. I mean, I mean, I'll tell you this. Especially if it's a movie I like, I like going back and seeing the trailer because it reminds me how much I love the movie. But sometimes... Uh, more often than not, a great trailer does not indicate a good movie. I'm trying movie to, to think point. of, and this is hard to th- like think back on trailers. What is a ba- a trailer that you're like, this movie doesn't look good, and then it ends up being great? Like this is a tough game I'm making you play. There's no way for you to. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to think on that one. I mean, there's definitely some. The, the Good Thief is a movie with Nick Nolte. I remember that I really liked the movie, and the trailer wasn't great. I mean, The Sixth Sense. I don't even remember watching the trailer. But I think whatever the trailer was, it was enough to indicate. I'll tell you one, The Usual Suspects, 26-year anniversary, I believe, is this week. And that was a great trailer. Because those actors were, you know, listen, Gabriel Byrne had been in a few movies. But nobody knew who Kevin Spacey was. Nobody knew, really, unless you, like, stand up who Kevin Pollack was. Benicio Del Toro, complete unknown. And that film, their marketing campaign, the trailers, they literally just had a giant question mark. And it said, who is Kaiser Soze? And if you read it, you're like, who is Kaiser Soze? What, what the hell is this? <laughs> but that, that trailer for The Usual Suspects was a great one. That definitely was really good. Um, anyways, back to Free Guy. Like I said, it's basically the Truman Show. He's a guy who's trapped in a video game, does not realize that he is artificial. And when he realizes that, he wants to be real, wants to find connection, wants to find love. It's a perfect star vehicle for Ryan Reynolds, who, as we all know, is a very charming actor, very handsome. Uh, You know, no role has ever fit him better than Deadpool. And this is almost like an extension of that. It's not Deadpool, because Deadpool is obviously a lot more profane and R-rated, a little more violent. Uh, Free Guy, though, is like the very sweet, good-natured Ryan Reynolds, which you've definitely seen him do in romantic comedies and such. But ultimately, I'm going to give it two and a half Maple Leafs. I thought it was a... A de- a, certainly a good star turn, an enjoyable time at the movies, but because of the complete lack of originality, I can't really get behind a movie like this. I will say Taika Waititi is fantastic as the villain. At one point, he's very upset about the fact, and by the way, the difference is this. Truman, Jim Carrey's in a TV show, for those who don't know. Ryan Reynolds here is existing inside of a video game. So he's in a video game, and then gamers play him, and what happens is there's this glitch. All of a sudden, he becomes blue shirt guy, and he starts doing good things because he falls in love with one of the characters. And now if you're playing the video game, like, wait, this isn't working. My console's messed up because blue, blue shirt guy is screwing everything. I'm trying to kill this person. And blue shirt guy is saving people. He's obviously a good guy. Also, excellent use of the music. Mariah Carey's fantasy, all-time classic. Um, there's other music of the 90s that is used to definitely to good effect. So it's, I think, dipping in nostalgia in the right way. Enjoyable film. Taika Waititi at one point as a villain is talking about the video game sales are down. And he goes, this is like getting cancer in the ass and the balls. Jesus. Inoperable. I'm like, <laughs> man, that, that is definitely a double whammy nobody wants to get. Anal and testicular. Um, but ultimately, enjoyable film. Utkarsh uh, Budkar, by the way, former guest here in Cinephile, also in the film. He's very good. So two and a half Maple Leafs for Free Guy. If you're looking for a soft, entertaining film, I think that you'll get that at the movies. I know everybody's wondering, especially my friend Alpha Hill one. Did I get the large popcorn? No. Saw Free Guy solo, so no snacks Ooh. this time. 11 50 No snacks? By yourself? Snacks are just yeah. for the kids? Yeah. But next week, Jungle Cruise. We're definitely getting that large popcorn and a refill. All right. As promised, Field of Dreams. By the way, the other voice you hear in this interview, Kevin Millar, who joined Adnan to talk to Kevin Costner. Does it get much bigger than Kevin Costner? Take a listen. Kevin Costner, the star of the iconic Field of Dreams, here with us on set. Your vision when you were thinking about doing this, did you ever think it was going to be this big, the movie, and did you ever think there'd be a real Major League Baseball game played here 25 years later? 
listen, I, you know, I have this one opportunity. You guys see the movie when it comes out. I have the, this, this opportunity when I'm by myself and I read a script for the first time. No one's around me. And I remember finishing it thinking, you know, it wasn't an action movie. There wasn't a fist fight. There wasn't anything. But that felt like there was gold dust all over it. And I thought, you know, if we can hold the line of this movie that could tip into being goofy, and just hold the line in and understand the passion and what this game means, even to the players who curse it all the time, but they won't let anybody else curse That's it. Right. That's exactly you know what I mean? And so what happens is I, I felt that, that this had a chance to be something really great. You never can predict runaway thing. You can't predict this uh, kind of whole vocabulary that's even around this thing. I mean, you, 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 don't, you don't predict this kind of thing. You don't even try to dream about it. But when you see it, you just kind of appreciate it and take part and, you know, it, 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 it was... I, I do remember saying to the owner, I don't know that I would corn this over. I remember having that conversation mm -hmm. with him because sometimes on movies when they mean something to me, I, I'll, I'll keep the car like I kept the Shelby Cobra on um, Bull Durham. Yeah, that I'm you buying know. from you after there, the show. There, yeah. That was a great thing, so that's breaking news, yeah. guys. But there's times when you think uh, there's something special, but no one sees this coming. Yeah. I want to take you back to 1980. By the way, my math is bad. It's 89. It's like over 30 years. Not You and I are public school guys probably. LA City Junior College, <laughs> go, Vermont, yeah. Vermont so Melrose. our math is always going to be a little off. We're just a little tick off. We were at the beach boogie boarding. But that being said, 1988, you go back to Fenway Park, my old stomping grounds to check out a game there, okay? You had two future stars in the stands there. They were extras, I believe, and Matt Damon and uh, yeah. Ben Affleck. And Ben and I became friends because he's a big Red Sox fan. So I helped kind of uh, get he and J-Lo back because he kind of gets us back. We have a picture here, and this <laughs> is back in the You're day. You're playing matchmaker well, I'm now. the matchmaker, and then this is our picture right here. There they are. That was back <laughs> 2003 and four back in the day, but when you were at that game, did you know that you had two future stars there and Damon and Affleck? No, I mean, you know, that's trying to make your way in this life is an individual pursuit. I mean, how many guys are trying to make it to the major leagues yes. and aren't going to make it? How many guys are trying to make it Hollywood and aren't going to make it? You don't know. What you try to do is be kind to the people you meet along the way. Once in a while, there's a little bit of advice, and other times you just understand how hard or maybe lucky. I, you know, uh, you just don't know. Mm -hmm. The ending of the film, Kevin, really elevates it to a new level. And I, I read that your quote, you said, I was involved, it was bigger than the movie at that time. When you say, hey, Dad, you want to have a catch. You were involved in what? Your quote was, I was involved, it was bigger than the moment at that time. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, I don't know. Some, you know, you, you, you go, I never go into a scene not knowing what I'm going to do. <laughs> I have an idea what I want to do. I mean, God, I hope so, you know. And um, But sometimes you look at something and it, there's a, it's, it, it, you know, there's air just blown into it. It was a bigger moment. It was, okay, like I said earlier, there's no fist fight. There's no anything. It's like the line is going to be, do you want to have a catch? And it overtook me. Uh -huh. And I also kn knew that I couldn't let him know that we were connected. And so it was a, it was a, a how I handled that moment, I don't, I don't know. You know, it's like probably a lot of guys handle it differently, but it was like, it was bigger than what I thought. It also has that thing about the things that fathers and sons just can't say to each other. Right. And they take too long and it never gets said. And the movie, for its lightness and for its breeziness, deals with that. Those moment are goosebumps, by the way, what you're doing right <laughs> those, those are things that just get unsaid between the people we love. And, 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 and if you could go back, if you, you, know, if you weren't stubborn, and the, make no mistake, that movie is built around that moment for yeah. me.
things that go unsaid. Yeah, no question. He doesn't say to his dad, I'm sorry what I said to you. I love you, dad. It's just he uses a baseball term and that kind of bridges the gap. I looked up, Kevin, and they have the whole speech from James Earl Jones, the people will come speech. And I love, you said it's kind of like Spencer Tracy in Inherit the Wind. Yeah. Tell us a little bit how great that speech Well, it, you know, occasionally you get those things. I had a JFK speech, you know, um, where you go and, and all of a sudden you stare at James Earl Jones and you have this voice from an, just, uh, we had the, so many things went right, and, and when this movie's concerned, so much of it somehow gets focused to me, and I think to myself, you know, the real star of this movie was Phil Alden Robinson, kind of a non-athlete, really, who had the good sense to understand the beauty of this book. He could figure out how to bring it to the screen. He directed it. He made the choices about the music, the music that puts the hair on. Th those were Phil's choices. I think of Chuck Gordon and Larry Gordon, guys who were producing really big movies, who were asked to do this movie was for 10 bucks, you know, um, a movie out in the corn. And they turned their entire attention. They were here every day with me. Chuck is now gone, a friend. He, you know, he didn't get to see this. Um, but, uh, you know, the guy who filmed it, this movie came together in a perfect little way because it had to. That's the only thing it had going for us was just the choices. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned Phil Alden Robinson, also Burt Lancaster. I mean, this guy, Sweet Smell of Success, Atlantic oh City. My God. He's a great, great actor, Kevin. I didn't realize it as a kid. As an adult, I go, this guy played some great movies. I feel like in some ways, all the respect, he steals the movie. Moonlight Gravy's amazing. No, Burt Lancaster was, and I sat with him and we sat, and remember he said to me, oh boy, the studios were scared of me. <laughs> I said, tell me, Brady, because I will, I'll tell you. And I said to him, I said, you know, there's a scene in the Kentucky, and he goes, you saw that? I said, yeah, I did, actually. And he goes, you saw what I did? And I said, yeah, I did. Let me tell you what I did. So I, I mean, he was, he was, I mean, when he was, he was a guy, handsome guy. Oh, yes. I have a really good friend that I do business with. He's an architect, a really great architect. And uh, when they announced the game, he said, hey, are you, are you going to the, the field of dreams. I said, well, the, the phone hasn't rung yet, but I, I got a feeling probably it might. And he goes, you know, I built that. I couldn't tell you for two years. And I thought to myself, how good a friend is he? <laughs> I don't know if that's I mean, a great I mean, friend. I mean, you really believe in that non-disclosure thing? We, we had a little talk, but he, he, took, he took, he's the guy that that built that stadium, the, designed it, yeah. the architect, John Shreve. It's iconic and unforgettable, and Field of Dreams lives on so many years. Our big, big thanks to superstar Kevin Costner. Thank you so much, guys. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Dwyer Brown, thankfully, taking a victory lap as we're celebrating Field of Dreams. Great to see you, man. Thanks, A.V. It's great to be here again. Yeah, fantastic <laughs> documentary that Fox put together, and you were a focal part of it. If you build it, they will come. The story of how you got cast, the casting director said, Dwyer walks in, she goes, he's got a great period face. I hope he can act. And then you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nailed yeah. him. Right. Yeah. yeah. What well, was it like, though, getting that role? As you said, you'd been a struggling actor. It was, it was a grind for you, and then you get this part. Yeah, it, it was kind of amazing. I had read the novella Shoeless Joe in college, and I just loved it, you know. So whenever an audition comes down the line where you know the material, it's it's added incentive, and you know it's such a great book. So I was really, you know, stoked to get the part. But uh, it was only when I was researching my book that I figured out how many other people were auditioning because I got to see all of uh, Marjorie's casting notes, and uh, Jim Carrey's name was in the sign-in sheet. You know, wow. which I mean, you know, I, it's the only role I ever beat him out for. But uh, <laughs> hey, the mask you could have got ahead of him too, but that's fine. Yeah, it, it would have been a different movie, I think, with with Jim Carrey in it. And I don't know if you guys saw the. Uh, uh, comedians in cars. Oh, yeah, 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 comedians in cars and coffee. He coffee. talked about, you know, for, for 20 minutes, he talks about Field of Dreams in yeah. that segment. It's, it's amazing. That's, that's 89. That's, you know, pre Ace Ventura was early 90s. Yep. So that makes sense. That, that is good stuff. I want to know is it, ha- is it, wait, wait, is it have a catch or play catch? Well, this is an interesting story because Kevin and I were on the set and getting ready to shoot this thing. And, and you know, we were kind of like, and Kevin says to me, look, what is this have a catch thing? Right. And I said, yeah, 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 me too. He grew up in California. I grew up in Ohio. Yeah. And, you know, Phil doesn't come off as a super athletic guy. And we're thinking, maybe he just doesn't know. You know? So, <laughs> so Phil Alden Robinson, the director. Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so so we, we go up to him, you know, kind of, you know, kind of sheepishly. And, you know, uh, we're wondering about this have a catch thing. And, you know, we always said play catch. And he said, I'm from Long Island. We say have a catch, it's staying. <laughs> okay, we're in. We're up. Yeah, it's good. You know, always and, call the director. You know, in retrospect, I think it's kind of cool because have a catch always makes me think of the movie. You know what I mean? Yes. For those of us who didn't grow up on Long Island, yes, it, it is totally associated with the movie. And to me, it's a kind of a more poetic way. You know, play catch is a game. Have a catch is a moment. moment you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's uh, that's appropriate for this movie. So how often do people ask you, oh, do you want to have a catch? There's about 30 people waiting <laughs> yeah, to see yeah. it on Dwyer. Yeah. You could ask these guys. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it happens all the time. But, you know, to me, it, it's kind of great. I mean, like, like, like you said, my, my dad died unexpectedly 30 days. I'd already been cast in the movie. Yeah. I was stopping at the farm I grew up with in Ohio, and my dad died the night I arrived. And, and so uh, when people, um, you know, come up to me and, and are emotional about the movie or want to have a catch with me, it's just so meaningful to me because it reminds me of my dad. I mean, this is his mitt that he taught my brother and I to play catch with. That is unbelievable. That's yeah. awesome. And they make stuff now and that look vintage, but that's yeah, what it's about this, this right This is there. for real. And, and I take it everywhere I go. And, and I, let, I, I let people, you know, wear it and have a catch with me because it's, you know, it's the only way they're ever going to shake hands with my dad. You know, it, in fact, you can see I had to replace the insides because... Because so many people have had their hands in there, and and, I mean, and to me, it's it's just it's just my way of staying in touch with my dad. And that moment is such an emotional climax, and yet you've told the story. This was nerve-wracking. 
There's oh. a helicopter. This is pre-CGI. Yeah. You're using a tough period myth that is rigid. You're terrified you're going to drop the ball oh, this catch. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't think about it at all coming up to the thing. There were so many other things going on. A helicopter coming out of the field, a guy hanging out with the camera. <laughs> and, and suddenly I'm thinking, like, what if I drop the ball? I'm going to look like such an idiot. You know, they waited the whole movie for the father to appear. <laughs> yeah, he was a minor league catcher. And then, right. bang, off the mitt and it drops. And I'm like, that ain't going to happen. So, anyway. I do, I do have to ask you about William Friedkin, legendary oh, director of The Exorcist, uh, French Connection, of course. I did not lose it. You worked with them not once, but twice. Give yeah. me a Friedkin story. Well, when I first moved to Chicago, uh, I was into improv, and uh, I went into audition for To Live and Die in L.A. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're in the middle of the audition, and Friedkin's like, ah, forget this. Let's just improv. So he's, he starts throwing me lines and stuff. I'm, I'm just, it's a very small part. I'm, I'm, and, you know, so he starts throwing me stuff, and I'm whipping things back at him. And sure enough, I get the part. No big deal. Yeah. Well, then, years later, I'm in Field of Dreams. He's trying to cast The Guardian. Can't find anybody. He sees me and says, this is my guy. So I walk into the room to sort of, you know, just have a meeting with him. Yeah. And he says, it's great to meet you. And I said, well, actually, I was in one of your movies already. <laughs> he was so embarrassed that yeah. I think that's why he gave me the part. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's like an ex league teammate. You don't yeah. know. I, I was on your team. What's your name? Right. Oh, you were in the bullpen. I remember that. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, it, it was, you know, Hurricane Billy is, oh. I mean, any of us who've worked with him, I mean, he wanted to record that whole movie after we shot it yeah. he wanted to to loop the whole thing record it re-record it in the studio right. he said someday i'm going to make a movie and we're going to do all the sound after we already shot it you know which <laughs> to an actor that's like that's like crazy you have an emotional scene and then somehow you gotta right. you know in a studio right, you gotta right, come right, up with it uh, anyway right. anyway interesting Dwyer Brown, uh, actor and novelist. Now, I want you to plug. Where are your books? Where are books Well, I, I only have one book, and it's a memoir. Uh, it's called If You Build It. Uh, you can get it on Amazon or at my website, DwyerBrown.com. Uh, uh, it's, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's a moment of pride for me to have, have finished the book, and it's a lot about my dad. It's a lot about all the crazy fun we had shooting the movie with, with you know, Kevin and Ray and James Earl, and there's a chapter about each one of them because, to me, each one of them was such an honor to be a part of something with them. And uh, anyway, and, and, and the other stories are sort of the, several of the ones people have told me coming up to me over the years. And it with tears in their eyes telling me that, you know, they had lost the relationship with their dad. And, and when they saw that movie, they just dragged him to the movie and they got over their, their differences. People changed careers because of this movie. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was just this actor, never been recognized for anything in my life. Yeah. And suddenly, you know, I'm in airports and, and people are coming up to me and I end up hugging these people and we're crying with a stranger and I'm thinking like, <laughs> what just happened to me? You know? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's a remarkable performance and it's an incredible movie and congrats to you. And, and listen, I'm glad that you've been able to feel that love because all of us feel that love from yeah. you. So I'm glad it's been reciprocated. Yeah, I have definitely felt nothing but love from everybody about this movie. Dwyer Brown, thank you so much. Shooting Midnight Cowboy, art, sex, loneliness, liberation, and the making of a dark classic. A thrill to bring in Glenn Frankel, the best-selling author of The Searchers and High Noon, which I can't wait to tackle after reading his marvelous book. Glenn, thank you so much for the time. Let's dive right in. Uh, the biggest revelation from your book, I can't believe it. One of the great moments ever in cinematic history is Dustin Hoffman as Ratso Rizzo saying, I'm walking here, I'm walking here. Hoffman has always claimed the scene was strictly an improvisation. He was furious because the cab driver tried to beat the signal, almost hit us, he yelled out. But in reading your book, Dustin Hoffman's account may not be entirely accurate, right? There was thoughts about this being in the movie originally in the script. 
the the scene was in the script, Adnan. It was uh, in in drafts that I read that come from December 1967, more than six months before the scene's actually filmed. There is a cab driver trying to beat the light, going through the crosswalk as our two boys, Joe Buck and Ratzel Rizzo, are crossing the street. And he slams his hand down. The difference is, however, that there's no dialogue in the in the script, in the draft screenplay. The I'm walking here line, uh, Dustin's line that he had lived was not in the screenplay. So whether he had lived it on the spot, improved it on the spot, because he says he was going to say, we're making a movie here, you know, and instead managed to stay in character. I mean, I don't know about that. All I know is that the line is Dustin's. It's the line that we remember. So, you know, let's give him at least 50% of the credit for it. Yeah, and at least his version of it. Schlesinger liked it so much. He's okay, do it again. Then they add the up yours, buddy. So they actually had a couple more lines and they did more and more takes. I love Dustin Hoffman's line when he was talking about how the fame was almost too much for him. Attractive women were bountiful. You know, everywhere he's going, he's being stopped. And he says to Larry King, you know how I knew I'm a star? I'm walking down Fifth Avenue and a girl wearing a T-shirt who was, to quote W.C. Fields, bountifully endowed by the creator recognizes me. She lifted up her T-shirt. She doesn't have a bra on. She says, would you sign me? Like, it's amazing because I just read Mark Harris's book, Pictures at a Revolution, and looking at Hoffman where he was with The Graduate and how he became literally this overnight sensation after a decade of being this workmanlike actor. When watching the film again, Glenn, I appreciate just how gutsy he was doing Ratzel Rizzo because The Graduate, he could have done another role like that, very safe, leading man, waspish. Ratzel Rizzo's got disgusting teeth. He's got the hair. He's got the Bronx accent, the limp. I mean, this is a real definition and proof that Dustin Hoffman was a great actor with Midnight Cowboy. Absolutely. And I mean, one of the things about what Hoffman was able to do is first with The Graduate, you know, playing it, it's the ultimate sort of generation gap movie. So already he's become something of a counterculture icon because of The Graduate, not just a movie star, but a cultural hero. And then he turns around and does this character role and he's so good in it. And I think he's, you have to give him a lot of credit for the film's success. I know I lined up to see the movie in large part because I knew Dustin Hoffman was in it. So yeah, this was a gutsy thing to do. It was a little tricky for him because the movie was originally rated X or he thought it was. And, and he was a little afraid that this actually was gonna in some way sabotage his brand new you know, movie star career. But nonetheless, he should get full points for it. And I think it's one of the big reasons, of course, he and Voight together, John Voight, they're fabulous in this movie and their collaborative effort is one of the big reasons why it's a great movie. It's a little head-scratching, though. Hoffman did not be involved with a lot of the promotional stuff for the movie. His agent wanted more money, and the producer was like, no, he's not really helping promote the movie. It's almost like he wanted to distance himself from it. There's one thought you wrote in the book. Maybe he watched the movie and realized John Voight walked away with the film and just, you know, in a very kind of, I don't want to say egotistical way, but just maybe it was tough for him to accept that. But publicly, at least to you, he's always said it was a wonderful experience. He thought John Voight was great. He thought John Schlesinger was really good. So he's definitely proud of the film. It's a shame with his career now. Unfortunately, as you mentioned in the book, it's almost like a postscript. You almost forget, Dustin Hoffman was accused by eight women in 2017 of sexual harassment, including a 17-year-old on the set of Death of a Salesman. So he's one of those actors that still wants to keep acting. But unfortunately, you'll have to look back at these past movies because I don't know how many more new movies Dustin Hoffman's going to be making. As far as John Schlesinger, I love this description. He was small, pudgy, and prematurely balding. His weight wandered up and down, as he himself put it, like a whore's drawers. This is a director who you're not necessarily expecting to make one of the great films of the 60s and really kind of pointing out 
a, a movie of a generation. I, I did like sense of humor, though. This is a good story about Julie Christie. Instead of a fake corpse, Christie found a smirking prop man holding a large dildo between his legs. Everyone on the set burst into raucous laughter. It was delightfully childish. This is a guy with a great sense of humor. As you describe him, Glenn, he wasn't quite in the closet. He wasn't quite out of the closet. He did have his partner there with him on set. Um, this isn't a gay movie, but it is written by a gay person in Jamie Leo Hurley, and he's a gay director. So just speak a little bit about the fact that Schlesinger was so perfect for this material because he had that humanistic touch. He had the humanistic touch. Also, just like the main character in the book, Joe Buck, who comes to New York from Texas, and he thinks he's going to become a male hustler. And, you know, he's looking to find something in his life, to find some meaning. John Schlesinger comes from London to New York to try to expand his movie making career. I mean, he's been a he's been a hit in the UK. I mean, he made a couple of really nice little movies, the biggest one of which Darling starred Julie Christie in her first starring role and won her the Oscar for Best Actress. So Schlesinger's got some real cred. And like a lot of British, you know, successful British filmmakers, his next step is Hollywood and and, and eventually Midnight Cowboy. So you know, he's a little bit forgotten these days. He's not mentioned with Scorsese or, you know, or Francis Ford Coppola or some of the other heroes of the new Hollywood era. But I think these couple of movies, starting with Darling and including Midnight Cowboy and Sunday Bloody Sunday, they stand up to the best of those movies. He's got his finger on the culture and he's but he's never compromising. I mean, there's a lot of tough stuff, as you know, in Midnight Cowboy, a lot of uncompromising stuff. Joe Buck isn't just your standard, you know, movie hero. And he and he and Ratso Rizzo are not nice people, nor are they bros really in any sense. So Schlesinger was was true to his own vision. But at the same time, he makes movies that are very entertaining and that really made a lot of money back in those days. Yeah, I love the comparison you made to films like Truffaut and Satyajit Ray, the great Indian filmmaker. You know, humanistic guys looking to look at these characters as real people. John Voight's an interesting guy because he's had an eclectic career. Won an Academy Award for Coming Home. You say his name now and people say, okay, Ray Donovan won a Golden Globe. Oh, he's the guy with Angelina Jolie's dad. Oh, he's a huge Trump fan. Like, yep, he, he did say Trump is the greatest president since Abraham Lincoln. So I think sometimes you might fall into the trap of looking at John Voight and the, the headlines he makes. But as far as an actor, I watch Midnight Cowboy again, Glenn, after reading your book, and I think it's a sensational performance. I, I'm amazed he's from Yonkers, because he strikes me as that big, dumb cowboy from Texas. Um, and the way he's kind of drawn into Ratso's world, and like the genuine emotion he has, which, again, I don't think it's gay. I mean, I'm surprised people found that. Like, John Wayne, you have the quote in there, he says he called the movie perverted. It's about two gay slur. And I was like, no, I don't think that at all. I think it's about these two guys and having this communi communication, this ability. But I thought Voight was fearless in the movie. And I, I know you wrote in the book, you think he walks away with the movie. Yeah, I think he's terrific. It is called Midnight Cowboy, not Midnight Ratso. And Voight is the lead, is the real lead. The, Hoffman's the movie star in the movie. So, you know, I, I think my portrait of Voight is a little surprising. He's an actor's actor. He was so dedicated, so sincere, so interested in doing this. And I have to say, you know, interviewing him a few years ago in the midst of his, let's say, transformation to Trump's biggest Hollywood fan, Nonetheless, when he talked about Midnight Cowboy and the work he did, and he talked about working with Schlesinger, he considered it one of the very high points in his career. He understands that it helped make his career. He's very proud of the work. He's proud of the movie. This is a guy who's a serious actor. In many ways, back in that day, a sort of serious Boy Scout. He drove people crazy because he was so obsessed with acting. But at the same time, as you point out, I mean, he was good in that. The fact is, I've seen a lot of John Boyd movies now. He's always good, even when he's in crap.
Yeah, even Anaconda. He's still, I agree with you. It's a, it's a funny B movie. He's basically sending up Tony Montana. It's still good. I, I've forgotten. I'm glad you mentioned he got Academy Award nominated for Ali playing Howard Cosell. I forgot that he was actually really good in that movie as well. Uh, now we'll get to the salacious material, which my producer Chris Cody will enjoy. Because as I said, the title is Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation. And there's a lot of sex. This is interesting. And I think it's important you put this in here, Glenn, because it's kind of showing what the 60s are about and what Schlesinger is trying to tackle. Jim Carroll, I think people know that name because the Basketball Diaries, the film that Leonardo DiCaprio wrote, listen to the way he described the men's room at the Grand Central Terminal. They lined up the urinals, the usual CD dudes, hustlers, all these eyes peeking down at the guy next to me who's peeking down at me, along with the guy on my other side and jacking off like madmen, 40 pistons pumping back and forth at incredible rates. Later, you're talking about a book by Gore Vidal's Myra Breckenridge, uh, which is a huge hit, instant bestseller. It's a spirited fantasy tale of a professor who changes his gender, goes to Hollywood, where the former he, now a she, straps on a dildo and sodomizes a young actor. It was referred to as a funny novel that requires an iron stomach, but spent 30 weeks on the bestseller list. I mention that because the sordid underbelly that Midnight Cowboy is tackling, 42nd Street, Gay Hustlers, etc., Schlesinger's got to find a way to tap into that without being too explicit. For example, the scene where Bob Balaban performs fellatio on Voight's character, it's really expertly done. It's very subtle. It's just a couple of looks, and then all of a sudden it's going to flashbacks, etc. How important was that, that they were trying to tap into the zeitgeist of that moment and these sexually taboo topics, which are not today, certainly were back then? Well, this is the late 60s, and popular culture is undergoing a real transformation. I mean, you mentioned some of the iconic moments, but Boys in the Band opens up off-Broadway in 68. Uh, Philip Roth and Portnoy's Complaint, which was, you know, <laughs> banned in Boston or here and there, I don't know. You know, so sexual, you know, more adult themes, more sexual depiction in movies. It's one of the reasons why they moved to the rating system, because the old production code censorship system wouldn't allow for any of this stuff. But they were looking to get long, younger audiences. It was a changing time. However, I got to add, I mean, one of the things homosexuality was still illegal in 49 of 50 states. It's one of the reasons why the novelist James Leo Hurley and the director John Schlesinger stayed tightly in the closet publicly, even though they're exuberant gay men in their private life. I found it so, you know, movies are a great looking glass into the past. They show you things that you don't ordinarily see. And, and, and so I sort of thought New York would be this liberal open place based on this popular culture changes, but no, there was a, a, a deep sense of homophobia. There was deep concern about Midnight Cowboy itself. United Artists, the people who released the movie, self-rated it X because they were afraid that, you know, homosexual scenes like that, I don't know, might affect young people like me, straight young people to consider becoming gay. It sounds ridiculous now, but that was the fear and the prejudice of the time. And I tried to capture some of that in the book because as I say, this was an opportunity for me to explore what attitudes were like, how they were changing, what was changing and what wasn't in that era. Yeah, and by the way, that story, I want everyone to read the book once again. It's called Shooting Midnight Cowboy by Glenn Frankel. The story of how it's self-rated an X is unbelievable. Because as you point out, people like me think, oh, the ratings board was a bunch of prudes. No, 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 they gave it an R. United Artists, they gave it an X and ended up being great for the film. It made a huge business because obviously in this taboo film, they give it an X, becomes the first X movie to win Best Picture. All of Dustin Hoffman's fears were completely unfounded. The whole concept of the cowboy as a sexual uh, being. I mean, th this is interesting here. There's uh, Night in the Desert. 
this is one painting that you were pointing to, physique pictorial, nearly every issue, muscular, semi-clothed, young beefcake guys, handful of cowboys among the studs. Uh, one issue has a bandit holding up a stagecoach, forcing two male passengers to strip off their clothes. Again, as you said, it's the 60s, now it gets a little looser. Now all of a sudden it's uh, men completely naked except for cowboy hats and small loincloths draped strategically over their genitals. By the early 70s, the loincloths are gone altogether, and a typical Western photo has young men wearing just hats, holsters, and cowboy boots while prominently displaying their penises. I'm laughing the movie because Voight thinks cowboys is the symbol of masculinity. And as Hoffman is saying to him, no, that's gay slur stuff. Like, what are you doing, man? Like, that cowboy stuff's over. That, but again, it's so fitting with that icon iconography of cowboys, masculinity, homosexuality at that time. Yeah, it's gay coding. Schlesinger denied it. He said that had nothing to do with it, but it, clearly it does. And there's a scene there, if you remember, about a third of the way through where Joe Buck's walking around Times Square. He's out of money. He realizes he's going to have to take on gay sex clients if he's going to survive. And there are other cowboy people dressed as cowboys on 42nd Street doing exactly what he's doing. And I talked to people who roamed that street in those days. And, and these days, I mean, cowboys are uh, a mixed bag sexually. And trade, this idea that, that heterosexual men could be, you know, could sell sexuality to their gay customers was very much part of the scene then. It's what Joe ends up doing. I mean, he thinks he's going to have a clientele of, of, of older, sexually frustrated, affluent women who are going to pay him for sex. But Last time I looked, there aren't any older affluent women <laughs> roaming 42nd Street looking for male hustlers. There are gay <laughs> customers looking for male hustlers. And Joe Buck learns a pretty hard lesson about what sexuality means and the transactional nature of it. I mean, all the sex in Midnight Cowboy is really kind of cold and transactional and even predatory. That's the scene down there. And Schlesinger does a really uncompromising job of giving that to us. Uncompromising is a good word for it. A couple more, we'll let you get out of here. Um, I love the comp you made with Taxi Driver. I mean, it's a great bookend. If you watch Midnight Cowboy, then watch Taxi Driver, you know, Taxi Driver is this incredible nihilistic vision of New York City. If you watch Midnight Cowboy, it's certainly grimy and edgy, but I love the point you made that it's almost like Taxi Driver was Midnight Cowboy and steroids. Like, this is where the country was seven, eight years, seven years later after Midnight Cowboy. But that's a really fascinating point you gave uh, that. Explain that point, how you think Midnight Cowboy and Taxi Driver are kind of bookends. Well, you know, New York City is the greatest city in the world, in the, in the, but in the late 60s, it's beginning to fall apart and the crime rate's up and the unemployment's rate up and things are going in a certain direction. Midnight Cowboy opens the door to a whole bunch of wonderful, grittier New York movies like Mean Streets, uh, like The Godfather, like uh, Dog Day Afternoon. But then comes Taxi Driver, which is almost like a horror movie. New York is at the bottom of the pit. And whereas Joe Buck is... Sure, he's God's lonely man, and he's a failure at so many things, and he has a core of violence in him, but he's not a psycho. You know, he's a, he's a vulnerable, difficult guy trying to get along in the world. Go from that to Travis Bickle, played by Robert De Niro in Taxi Driver, who's a Vietnam War veteran who's clearly been deeply damaged in some way that we never quite understand. And his violence and his anger and his loneliness and his refusal to allow anyone in. Joe Buck is looking for, for people to have a relationship with. Travis Bickle avoids anyone who wants to befriend him or who wants to be nice to him. He can't communicate. And then he commits a, a, a ugly act of violence and it looks like he's going to commit some more before he's through. So I was just struck. I'd seen Taxi Driving when it came out and you know in the mid seventies, but I hadn't seen it in years. And the power of that movie 
and and the horror of the tale it's telling and the racism in that movie and everything else makes it you know i think it's a great great movie and it frightened the hell out of me yeah, we're recording this August 17th. It's Robert De Niro's birthday. So a happy 70th birthday to Bob De Niro. And you're right, one of these great, iconic performances. My son, my eldest boy, Yusuf, is 13. He's an avid sports fan. So when I was watching Midnight Cowboy, I, of course, did not let him watch much of it. But he heard the name Joe Buck, and he goes, Joe Buck. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> Joe Buck. So please tell me, did you have any uh, association or conversation at all with the sportscaster, uh, you know, multiple Emmy Award winner, Joe Buck? It's all I've been thinking about this yeah. entire time. I, I, Chris has not seen the movie, but I know he's thinking Joe Buck because Larry David Glenn has told the story uh, when he met Joe Buck, all he literally said to him was like, Joe Buck? And Joe's like, yeah, he's like, like Midnight Cowboy? He's like, yeah. <laughs> uh, guys, I have to admit, you are the first people to bring this up. It never occurred to me to try to reach the great Joe Buck, the real non-fictional Joe Buck. So I love, you know, announcer I love. My son-in-law doesn't love him so much, but that's another matter. It never occurred to me. Now I got to go back and find the real oh, Joe Buck. You got to find Thank the real Joe Buck. So yeah, listen, what, yeah, what's people Very think polarizing, this real Joe Buck. Oh, that's true. There's no doubt about it. And last one, I think, Glenn, you're the first ever Pulitzer Prize winner you've had on the show. Congratulations. Where do you keep your Pulitzer Prize? You know, I was just looking at it because I'm getting some papers together to give to the University of Delaware. And there it is. It's just this little thing, you know. Um, and I remember last time some friends wanted to see it, some visitors. I couldn't find it. Well, now I finally found it. It's down in the basement under, <laughs> under four boxes and a little bit of stuff. It's nowhere near as important to me as, uh, you know, my kids' uh, diplomas. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm lucky to have it. I'm proud of it. And uh, now it's moving upstairs into my attic and where I'm talking to you now. And it's going to stay here. It, it's it's bad form to put it on the wall. It's, you know, if you got to put it on the wall. <laughs> Glenn, that is a power move by you to tell somebody like, oh, that thing. I don't know where it is. Right. It's just a power move, Glenn. Good job. Thanks. I, I try. It's not easy. Uh, you worked for many years. The Washington Post where is where you won that Pulitzer Prize. By the way, how much does it annoy you when people say Pulitzer? Because, of course, it's pronounced Pulitzer. Yeah, it's Pulitzer, Pulitzer. Somebody said, a buddy of mine that said Pulitzer like the chicken, uh, you know, and spelled it that way, P-U-L-L-E-T-S-E-R. Congratulations on the Pulitzer Prize, but what did you do to a chicken, you know? Or, or the Wurlitzer Prize. I mean, there's all kinds of ways of looking at it. All I know is they gave it to me. I've got it. It's here. I'm not giving it back. Uh, that's great stuff. The best-selling author of The Searchers and High Noon. Uh, I'll close with this because this is a great way you ended the book. This was about just the book itself. Because, again, if people haven't seen Midnight Cowboy and you go, what is it really about? If I brought you a story about this dishwasher from Texas who goes to New York dressed as a cowboy to fulfill his fantasy of living off rich women, doesn't, is desperate, meets a crippled consumptive who later pisses his pants and dies in a bus, would you? And the guy interrupts and says, and he said, I'd show you the door. It is a remarkable accomplishment. The film was even made. The fact it won Best Picture, the fact you've written this great book, it's called Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, The Making of a Dark Classic. And as you point out, you know, people like to, crap on the Oscars and I'm right there with them but they got it right like they could have gone with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid which is a really safe movie I love Ebert's description I'm not crazy about it he called it uh, bloated and I think slow I'm like I've never I mean I love Paul Newman and Robert Redford but I, I've never been taken with the movie I think you know looking back you'd think that's going to win Best Picture but the fact Midnight Cowboy won I give credit to the Oscars they, they felt it coming the movement was coming this was the forefront of the new no cinema no pun intended yeah, yeah. Well, this was a 
film that broke a lot of barriers, cultural barriers, adult theme barriers, you know, all kinds of things in the way movies are made, the way New York's depicted. So sure, it deserved to win. And every once in a while, the right movie wins Best Picture. And 1970 was one of those times. Yeah, it's a great, great film. Midnight Cowboy. Watch the movie and read the book Shooting Midnight Cowboy by Glenn Franco. Glenn, I can't thank you enough. This was great. Thanks, Adnan. Thanks for having me on. All right, thank you so much to Glenn Frankel. Obviously, check out his book, Shooting Midnight Cowboy. Thank you to Kevin Costner, Dwyer Brown. Um, honestly, it was a really, really cool thrill of a life to be there for the Field of Dreams. Next week, Jungle Cruise, starring Dwayne Johnson, Emily Blunt, and my man Paul Giamatti. Also, Three Colors, Blue, White, and Red, a great Polish film from the 90s. And, honestly, Kevin Costner is big, so is Ken Burns. He and I share a birthday. And the documentarian has a new documentary about Ali that is coming out soon on PBS. Ken Burns will join me right here on Cinephile. I'll see you at the movies.